Tonight we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, so I invite you to turn in your Bible there. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. There are scholars who believe this is one of the earliest letters written in the New Testament. We're going to look at chapter 1 there together. 1 Thessalonians 1, we'll read that whole chapter. Give your attention to the reading of God's Word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us. From the wrath to come. Thanks be to God for His Word. Let's ask for His blessing on it. Almighty Lord, as we spend some moments here looking at this passage, we pray that You would pour out on us Your Holy Spirit. We ask that You would give us a blessing, that You would show us what You would have us to see, And Lord, that we would ultimately see Christ. We pray that you would accompany your word with demonstrations of power in in our lives, that we would know you, know more of you, and desire to serve you with everything we have for Christ's sake. Amen. We're going to be talking this evening about authentic faith. Authentic faith. Authenticity today, of course, is a buzzword. And our culture, our society will tell us that authenticity means that you're true to your own personality, your own values, true to your own spirit, regardless of the pressures that you're under to act otherwise, true to yourself and to your own standards. It is self-expression. It's you expressing your feelings, your personality, your opinions, through your words and through the choices that you make. You define you. Pretty narcissistic, actually. There's another way of understanding authenticity. And the definition that we can give is that authenticity is conforming to an original. Making something or doing something that is according to an original. 
to an outside standard, right? If you're going to go and get some great authentic tacos, you don't come to my house because I'm going to Americanize them. You go to somebody's house who is Mexican who will make you true and authentic Mexican tacos. Well, Paul, he looks at these Thessalonian Christians and he gives thanks to God. Why? He gives thanks to God, the God who has chosen these Christians and loved them because they have, and and as proof of this choosing and loving, they have authentic faith. They have authentic faith. But on, on what grounds could Paul say this? Well, there's three markers that we're going to look at in this passage. The first is gospel labors. The second is gospel power. And the third is gospel witness. Gospel labors, gospel power, and gospel witness. And this is something that's so important for you and I as well as we think about our own Christian journey. How do we know what authentic faith is? Do we have authentic faith? Is faith living is active in our lives? Very important question. And so we want to think today and, and think about that call that if we are a church with true faith and we are to follow the example given here of these Christians in Thessalonica. Well, before we dive into our first point, we can give just a real brief background of what was going on city of Thessalonica is in Greece. If you were to go to Greece today, you can see that city still. It was a very important city. It was, uh, it was, on a, it was a port city. It opened up to the Mediterranean Sea. It was also on the major Roman highway, the Ignatius Way. So, of course, you can imagine a, a large city, a buzzing city with about 200,000 inhabitants, which was quite large for the day. You can imagine the, the religious pluralism there and, and the immorality that lived there. You could stand in the port area and you could look out over the bay and you could see Mount Olympus. Mount Olympus is where the Greek gods were supposed to live. And of course, a city with important trade and travel coming from all over, what would it offer? It would offer all the pleasures of life. The thrills, the highs, the entertainment, the sexual fluidity, the drink and promiscuity, all that sort of things. And so it was a city rampant with idolatry and immorality. But then into this city, God sent these missionaries. And you can read about that in Acts 16 and 17. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they had come from up the highway in the city of Philippi, another important city, about 140-ish kilometers away. And so you can imagine them. They're out in Shipshawana, and they come down the I-90 and arrive in Chicago. That was roughly the distance. And they come preaching that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, that He is King. Of course, they're by the Spirit of God. There were people who believed and welcomed that message gladly. The new converts welcomed the missionaries and their message with open arms. They welcomed them into their homes. They took them under their roof, provided for their needs, showed them great hospitality. But there were, of course, others as well 
who didn't want to hear the message. They stopped their ears. And persecution arose and the missionaries had to flee to another city. And then you can imagine, of course, these missionaries, well, what's become of these Thessalonians, these Christians there? Well, in chapter 2 and 3 of the letter, you can read about how Paul, anxious to know, sent Timothy. And he comes back with good news. Their faith is intact. They've not given in to the temptations and persecutions. Their faith has not been shipwrecked. They're serving Christ. And so Paul rejoices. And in our passage, verse 2 there, Paul thanks God because their faith is alive and real. There's true and authentic faith at work in these Christians. And what evidence is there of that? Well, the first thing is gospel labors. Paul looks at these Christians and he sees gospel labors or works of righteousness. And that only makes sense, right? As the Christian is brought into the family of God by grace, as they understand who Christ is, as their lives are transformed, they then what? Serve God. That's what we confess with the Heidelberg Catechism, isn't it? What does grace lead to? Gratitude. What does salvation lead to? Service. We think of the pattern of Christ Himself. We think of our Lord who, who as He went to the cross, He Himself labored. He, he worked. He Himself laboring under the burden of our sin to redeem us. And then the Christian who has received freely desires then to live a life of service to God. Well, a lot of Christianity today, and we can so easily fall into this, is passive, isn't it? It's like Walmart Christianity or Costco Christianity. I don't know about you, but the last time I went to Costco, I, I came out with just about a seven-course meal from all the handouts. What do we do when we go shopping? We go to, to get what we need. But the Bible knows nothing of that kind of Christianity. The Christianity of the Bible is one of service, of giving of ourselves. Like Jesus says in John 14, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I, that I do. We love, we serve because God himself in Christ is first loved us and paid the penalty for our sins. And so, these Christians in Thessalonica, they were laboring, working in faith. What did that faith look like? We don't have to go all that far to find out. We know from the text that we read. It was a faith that believed in Jesus as King. That as these missionaries came to the city preaching the good news of Jesus, these Christians, those who responded positively to the message, they believed. They believed on God's Word. They believed on His promises. God says, you're a sinner. You need a Savior. The Christian says, I believe that. God says, Christ is that Savior. You know about Him through My Word. The Christian says, praise God. Yes, I believe. These Christians were laboring in love. Our world today, of course, 
wants to completely redefine love. You gotta love yourself. Love you. You deserve a good break. You need to believe in yourself. Believe you're great. Give yourself a bit of self-love. A very inward kind of love. And it's a complete redefinition without any true definition. Love is love. Is love is love. What does that even mean? But if you ask me what's a chair and I say, well, a chair is a chair. It gives you absolutely no qualities or qualifications of chairness. But of course, as soon as you step outside of God's Word and of His own definitions, you have no basis upon which to define anything. And the love of God's Word is, of course, not an inward-focused love. It is an outward-focused love. Again, that God first loved the world, that then those who are saved in Christ desire to love. And you can see in verse 9, that they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. But Paul says, these missionaries, they came preaching the Word of God. And those who believed, Acts tells us, those like Jason and the other Christians, what did they do? Again, we already mentioned it. They opened their homes. They welcomed in these missionaries. And even when persecution arose and the missionaries fled, Jason and his other new Christian companions were willing to take a beating and to pay the price, pay bail, as it were, pay the fine for these missionaries. It was a love of service, a selfless love. And what about hope? Hope, something that is steadfast, says our text. And a hope which is grounded in our Lord Jesus Christ. All three of these, faith, hope, and love, they are all grounded in Christ. Hope, something that our world so desperately needs and in so many ways is so lacking. It was just this last May that the Surgeon General of the U.S. declared an epidemic, a crisis of loneliness. So many in our society have lost hope. And of course, if you're trying to live your life defined by your own reality, your own authenticity, rather than from God's Word, you will only be left with hopelessness. This life will never satisfy. Jesus only can satisfy. And this is a hope that lifts its eyes to a brighter day. A hope that trusts and expects to obtain what the heart has desired. And these Christians, look at verse 10 of our text, they had their eyes and their hearts set on greater realities beyond this world. That they were waiting for the Son of God from heaven. The God who raised from the dead Jesus Christ, the one who delivers the believers from the wrath of God. That is hope. Hope that there is eternal life. Hope that there is salvation in Christ. Hope that the Son of God will return again to take you and I home. That the brokenness of this world is not all that there is. These Christians had steadfast hope, even in the face of persecution. And then secondly, there was evidence of gospel power. If you were to look at verse 5 of our text, Paul is rejoicing 
in prayer before God. Because he said, he says, when we came into town, we, you received us not just in word alone, but, but God himself demonstrated his power and his Holy Spirit and his conviction. It wasn't just a gospel of word, of power. We live in a world, again, with so many fraudulent messages. The word of faith movement, healing ministries, where folks like Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, and others like them tell you that they can harness and channel the power of God and they can heal you. Or Joel Osteen will say, words carry God's supernatural power. They release favor, ability, confidence, and God's goodness in extraordinary ways. It's a name it and claim it. It's a, it's a simply believe. God becomes like a talisman, a genie in a bottle. And you can harness His Word and have power in your lives. Not what this is about. But then maybe for ourselves as Reformed believers, our temptation is that in some ways we focus only on Word and forget about the power of God in some ways. That can be our temptation. We preach our our thick sermons. Sometimes we write our big heavy books. We sing the Psalms. And we sing other biblically, biblically based songs. And those are all, of course, amazing and important things. We have our creeds. Our creeds which summarize faithfully the teaching of God's Word. But the challenge and the temptation is that God's Word can sometimes lie ineffective in our lives, and in our hearts, powerless. Think of the contrast of there were those in Thessalonica who received the Word with joy and faith, but there were those who stopped their ears when they heard the Word, that the power of God, that Holy Spirit of God, the conviction did not transform them. But these Thessalonian Christians that Paul is writing to, they had received they had received the word and god in his supernatural power had transformed them that same resurrection power had given them new life in christ in the gospel supernaturally transforming dead hearts so that in verse 9 and 10, Paul could say that these Christians, they had turned away from idolatry. They had done a 180. They were now serving the living and the true God. And we can push this further. They had turned from idols. And if God is living and true, it makes logical sense that these idols are dead. They are non-gods. And of course, the Bible tells us that over and over again, doesn't it? You think of Isaiah 46, where God calls His people and He says, how does it make any sense? You weigh out your money, your gold and your silver, you go and you give it to a, a goldsmith who crafts it into an idol and you fall down and you worship it. You've forgotten that I, I alone, says God, am God. And there is no other. And that all those who make idols are nothing. And the things that they treasure are worthless. Psalm 115 as well tells us where, where God says again through the psalmist, these idols that we so often fashion, they have 
mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but can't hear. Noses can't smell. Hands can't feel. Feet can't walk. And those who make them become like them. And so will all who trust in them. Bible, my friends, is very clear. Idols are dead. They are non-gods. And anyone who trusts in them will become like them. And it is only the supernatural power of God that can transform a heart that worships idols. I don't know if you've seen people in this world actually worshiping idols. I've seen it in some of our major cities in North America where people literally change the garments on a statue where they bring them food. I mean, even just south of here, there's a 34-foot tall idol that people maybe don't go to every day and bow down to, but it is idolatry. And so let me say to you very clearly, if there's anyone here this afternoon who is worshiping false gods, bowing down even just in your heart to idols, there is no salvation in there. Why will you give your time and your money for things that are temporal and material? There is no life in there. There is only one living and true God. And maybe you say to me, okay, well, I don't worship physical idols. But the Bible is clear. 1 Corinthians 6. What do we read there? Paul says, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, or drunkards, or slanders, or swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. In Ephesians 5 as well, same list of sins, such a person is an idolater. An idolater. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. For you and I, the, the call of the gospel is if we are serving anything other than the living and true God, we're idolaters. Have you ever been greedy? Have you ever committed sexual immorality in any kind of way, even just in your heart? The Bible says you're an idolater. And the Bible says the only hope that there is for you and for me is to come to Jesus Christ. And that by His supernatural power, by the power of the Holy Spirit, conviction of sin and conviction that the message of the gospel is true, that is the only hope. That's what Paul, Silas, and Timothy believed in. What the Ephesians and the Thessalonians believed in. Jesus, that He is the only one who is able to transform cold, dead hearts under the grip of Satan and make them supernaturally alive by the power of God. You think of standing in Thessalonica, looking out to Mount Olympus. Dead, false gods who are non-gods. There is only one living and true God. Thirdly and lastly, gospel witness, or what we could call gospel imitation. And this is something that in many ways is often forgotten or neglected in our world. Imitation, what, what is that? These Christians here, they set a pattern that other Christians then imitated. 
These Christians were doing great. And other Christians saw them and said, wow, you're doing great. We want to be like you. Now, if I were to say, I'm, I'm going to take the week off of school, and I'm, I'm just going to hang out with you. I want, I want to hang out with you. I'm going to follow you around because I want to learn from you, and, and I want to see how you live, and I want to then imitate you. If we were honest, would that maybe make us a little squeamish? Maybe be very quick to say, no, do as I say, not as I do. Don't look at me. Just look at Jesus. And there's truth in that, of course. Only Jesus was perfect. We're all sinful and flawed. But there's something quite amazing and powerful going on here and something that Paul talks about a lot in his letters. Now, these Thessalonian Christians had imitated the missionary Christian leaders, and they had then become a model to follow for others. Again, I said this is something that's quite common in Paul's letters in 2 Thessalonians. Paul there also, he told the church that he and the others had offered themselves, had lived the way that they did in order to offer themselves as a model to imitate. 1 Corinthians 4, I urge you then, be imitators of me. He says, I sent Timothy to you to remind you of my ways in Christ so that you would imitate me. And then here's the kicker, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Follow my example, Paul writes, as I follow the example of Christ. It wasn't in one sense that these Christians were so amazing in themselves, but that as the Christian, as Paul, Silas, Timothy, as these Thessalonians, as you and I follow Christ, we then ought to set a pattern that others would desire to follow. And it goes again back to the power of God, to God working in their lives. That's why Paul says, you became, verse 6, imitators of us and of the Lord. That there ought to be something in the Christian, imitation worthy. Paul says, you remember how we lived among you for your sakes, for the sake of your souls, living a Christ-like life for the sake of your souls. There's an evangelistic flavor to it. And that's why also in verse 8, this example, the model that these Christians were living was something that was trumpeted out to the whole world. Christians far and wide were hearing about the power of God at work in the life of this church. Imagine then. Imagine if you and I were the missionaries. We'd been chased out of town. Persecution had come and we'd, we'd left town. Now we're miles down, down the road to the south. And we're wondering, what's become of these Christians? And you'd imagine if I were to maybe get a little down and be like, what was the point of all that work anyways? And then maybe you say to me, hey, don't forget, remember, that same Spirit of God, the same power that was at work through us is at work in the people of God. That then, 
The word of the Lord sounded forth. It was trumpeted out from these Christians throughout Macedonia and Achaia, the provinces that the city was located in, and beyond. So that these missionaries had no need to say anything. That is incredible. That is so amazing that the, the gospel power that was at work in these Christians, their labors in faith, hope, and love in following Christ, that that became a witness to the, as it were, whole then known world, the Christians far and wide. And we don't want to miss this. How is it that Paul and his companions, that their work could continue, especially if they had been ousted from town? How could it continue? The answer is by making disciples who would then also make disciples. And so let's conclude our study in this passage. We've been talking about authentic faith. How is it that, a, that those who claim, who think that they are chosen and loved by God, how can they have confidence of this? That their faith is authentic. We look at this church, there's evidence here, and we, we think about Christ himself, what we're told in Revelation. The Lamb of the tribe of Judah himself walking among his churches. He knows his churches. He says to them all, what? I know your works. I know who you are. I know what you're about. We can so easily fool others around us about what faith is. Our faith. We can fool others, whether it's real or genuine. God knows. And the challenge, the call for us today is to ask ourselves, are we living this out? And that when we we see the effects of this in our lives, in the lives around us, in the life of our church, to rejoice like Paul did. I thank God, I praise God for you, that these things are evident in your lives. And to pray for more of the same. And so you and I are called to, to labor in faith, hope, and love, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of your faith and of my faith, to the God who is able to redeem us completely. That in hope we would wait eagerly for the return of Christ. Do you hope for that? Is that something on your mind and your heart on a regular basis? Lord Jesus, when will you come back? That excites me. Does that excite you? That is something that ought to excite us. And then even in pain and suffering, tribulation and persecution, we can endure through the power of the Spirit, even with joy. Love, something that is not a self-centered love like so many in our world, but an outward-focused love. Do you and I serve those around us? Think about some of the propensities of our life again as well. How many hours do we so easily just whittle away staring at a screen? A passive kind of life. Are we actively serving those around us? We can sometimes so easily put our time and our energy into things like, say, sports. Working so hard to get better at our, our, our three-point shot. But then we leave our scraps for God. Do we work hard at faith, hope, and love? Love in such a way that 
that others then would also say of us, those who were unbelievers, that others would say one day that those people, these Christians, they, they would be able to say, we had a good reception among you. They had a good reception among us. They were received by us. The gospel message was brought by those Christians to our door, and we believed, and we welcomed them in with joy. We need to be reminded of God's gospel power. Do you believe this? You and I need to know it. We need to believe it. Not just to, to receive the word of the gospel in word only. Do you pray on a regular basis that when you open up God's word for your devotions with your family, when you hear the word preached in church, that God would accompany it with power, through His Holy Spirit, with conviction, conviction of sin and conviction that the gospel message is true. You know, there's liberal theologians who have the New Testament memorized in Greek. But they're not Christians. They're far from Christ. But our challenge, our temptation is sometimes that the Word of God is lying dormant in our own lives that we read it, we hear it, and it has no effect. Pray to this end that God would accompany His gospel message, His word, with His power. And that is so important for evangelism as well. Think about the people living around you. Think about the unbelievers in your workplace, living next door to you, going to school with you. Can God save them? God saved you. You think about maybe your own conversion if you came from a non-Christian background. You think about the power of God that turned you from your idolatry to serve the living and true God. Or you think about how God raised you up in the church. We had two baptisms this morning. Our prayer is that God would keep those children faithful, bring them to Christ. Somebody growing up in the Christian community, never knowing a day when they didn't know Christ. Is that any less the power of God? It's not. Do we know it? Do we believe it? Is it alive? Is it active in our lives? The power of God. And lastly, the imitation of Christ. To imitate our Lord and our Savior. To imitate Him in such a way that the good news would emanate forth from us. That people far and wide would hear about what God is doing in our midst. That they would hear, not that, oh, we're so great that we can puff ourselves up, but no, that they would hear that there are those among us turning from idols to serve the living and the true God. God is able to do this. Let's pray for this. Let's pray for God to raise up those like, like Joshua, like Gideon, like David. We live in a time when Christians are fleeing the city. We don't want to be in the city. May God turn us around that the armies of Christ would march towards the city. That we wouldn't view other sinners outside of the kingdom of God as just icky, yucky, gross people, but that we would be gripped with a desire to see the glory of God. To see His name made known among the nations. That we would then go in the power of God. Not because we're so good. Not because what we say can convince others but because there is a God in heaven and he is living and he is true and every other idol 
is false and will never satisfy. But he sends his church in the same way that he has sent Christ. Christ now sends us to go to bring the gospel to a lost and a dying world and to believe that God is able even to raise and transform dead hearts. Let's believe, brothers and sisters, in the power of the gospel that Jesus Christ He came for the sake of our souls. He died on that cross to remove our penalty of sin. That His precious blood, as we're going to remember next week in the Lord's Supper, was shed for us to transform us. That we would worship God. Let's believe this. And then as we see the effects of faith, as we see faith alive in our own hearts and lives, the lives of other believers around us and in our church, to praise God, sing hallelujah. Lord, we see what you are doing. We're humbled. We don't deserve it. But we give you all praise and honor and glory. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you so much for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has transformed our hearts, that he shields us from your wrath that we deserve, and that we have life in him. We have not turned away from our idols to you because of what we can do, but you have turned us. And we praise you for that. And we would help, we ask that you would help us then to grow in faith. And that as we see evidence of faith in our hearts and our lives and in our church, that you would cause us to rejoice, that we would desire to see more of it, and that we would long that our faith would be echoed out around us to those around us that others would also come to serve the living and true God, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.